Good morning, SBC. It's good to be with you this morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joe. I'm one of the elders on staff, and it's a wonderful, wonderful privilege uh, to bring you God's Word. If there's a bit of an echo, don't panic about it. You get to hear God's Word twice at once, um, which is great. Uh, but man, it's fantastic to be here to open up God's Word. It's in Psalm 139. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to go and uh, get them and to open them up to that Psalm. It's going to be on the screen for you to be able to watch and see and read along with us. But later on this week, when you're meditating on this psalm, and I hope you do, you'll be able to go, oh, this is where, this is the spot that really spoke to me, and be familiar in your own Bible, which will be so, so helpful. We've been going through the song, a series called The Songs of Salvation, a journey through psalms, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. It has, for me, I've been really blessed to be able to sit under some good teaching uh, as the other guys have preached and been blessed to have the privilege to dive in deep into some psalms as well. Um, And uh, the psalms are great because they're faith with flesh on them. And uh, we've been saying that the series, but what we mean by that is that there are some real, real serious truths that come out of real life situations. And these psalmists have been able to experience some good things, some bad things, and in whatever moments, in the highs and the lows, have been able to apply faith, which is just awesome. And uh, as we see that, we're able to apply to ourselves some wonderful truths. So when we go through similar situations, we can be men and women of faith that can live courageously to the glory of Christ. And this psalm is no different. It is packed with faith. Uh, It's an incredibly intimate, wonderful psalm as David, the psalmist who writes this, explores the nature of God. And you can just, as you read it, and we will show and I'll point it out to you, there's this incredible intimacy between David and God. And, And so much so, I gotta admit, I feel like Mark did last week when he preached on Psalm 51, a bit inadequate to do so. Because I think this is written by David in the most um, intimate moments of his life with God. It is, it is packed with intimacy. It is the expression, at least in my mind, of Psalm 1. Uh, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. You want to know what that tree looks like with an intimate relationship with God? It's the psalm. And so it would be good for us to be able to hear David tackle big theological topics, the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God, the the uh, omnipotence of God, that he is all-knowing, all-powerful, that he is everywhere. Um, And yet while he tackles these big theological topics, he doesn't just leave it at this big ideas of who God is. He applies it personally to himself. I love the song we sung now. We spoke, we sang about the goodness of God, but he didn't say, God is good, but God is good to me. It's this application. It's wonderful. And in that comes this great delight. And so my prayer for you and my prayer for myself have been this week that we would just fall madly in love with Jesus more. As we realize how much he loves you and he loves me and he loves us, that we would just, there would be a stirring of affections in our hearts for him. So with that in mind, let us read. And how are we going to tackle this psalm this morning? It's 24 verses. We're not going to read it all at once. We're going to read it in sections. For, for those of you who are A-type and you've got your uh, notepads out already as you listen to this, we're going to break it up in four sections. It's verses 1 to 6 we'll read first, 
and then from 7 to 12, and then 13 to 18, and then 19 to 24. Those are the sections and four points that we'll be unpacking. And each point is a little different to the other. One, the first one's particularly long um, compared to the rest. Don't panic that when we've only finished the first one, going, geez, we still have another three to go. Um, don't worry, don't panic. Uh, they are very in length. So let's read verses one to six first. And as you do that, I want you to listen to the intimacy. My first point is God knows us intimately, and I want you to hear the intimacy that God has for the psalmist David and even the, the result of that flowing back up to God from David. It says the following, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts afar. You, you search up my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Wonderful. And the, the first section, the first verse could really just sum up the whole psalm, but particularly the first six verses, the, that, that line that says, you have searched and you have known me. It shouts intimacy that God has looked upon David and has known him. Has, it's all encompassing. It, it, it takes every detail into his, his life. The word search there gives the imagery of digging into a deep mine, searching for gold. That's like God searching David, searching you and me. It's, like, it's also used to explain the exploration of a new land, scouring every inch of it or uh, the investigation into a legal case, looking at every detail and making sure you get every nuance of it. So is God with us. He searches all of us, but it's not like a cold, hard fact type of a search, like you're five foot six, got curly brown hair, uh, brown eyes, and your middle toe is bigger than your big toe. It's, uh, while he certainly knows that kind of truth about you, it's more intimate that it's personal. And you can see that in the word know. He has not just searched and understood, but he has known. And this again is not the kind of know that you and I know Brad Pitt. We know what kind of movies he acts in and a bit of facts about him. While we certainly don't WhatsApp him and talk about his deepest and darkest feelings. Well, I'm sure there might be some ladies who would have loved that opportunity. But that's not the kind of knowledge here, but rather this is a knowledge of a parent a mother that knows every single thing about their children, what their best friends' names are, what their dreams and goals are, ambitions are, but even more perfect than that, an all-knowing parent. Every detail is wrapped with care and love. He just loves it. And, and, and you can just see that the psalmist is awestruck by it. He says, oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. He goes on a little bit, say, Eddie, this is, this is too wonderful for me. This, is, this knowledge is too wonderful for me. He's just blown away by the fact that God would care so much about him. But he unpacks what it means that God knows every detail in the remaining uh, couple of verses in that section. And he starts off in verse 2. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts afar. 
God sees everything you do. He never takes his gaze off of you. From the most mundane, casual, habitual acts that you do every single day, he watches you. There's nothing too boring that you do that he goes, okay, I'm just going to look elsewhere for it, but I don't want to watch this. But even in the most important, uh, purposeful acts that you give and do, God watches those and sees it. But it's more than that. It's not just being able to see our outward actions, but on top of that, he sees the motives behind those actions. So when you come back from a hard day's worth of works and, and just collapse on a couch, he not only sees that you cl- see you collapsing and resting, but he knows that you're exhausted. He knows the motive behind it. When you get up to go do something purposeful for your life, he knows the motive behind it, either to go and make some money to provide for your family or to go make a name for yourself. He, he knows what action and what motive is driving it. And we, we see this explained even more in verse 3. It says, you have searched my, out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. The word searched there signifies winnowing. It's uh, when you take grain and you get rid of the chaff and you get and you make sure the chaff gets and all the you able to separate the grain from the chaff and and so God too is able to discern he's able to judge every action of ours with surgical precision what is good and what is bad because every action we have has some chaff in it but God is able to remove it and sometimes when we do things our motives are are clouded with good and with evil But yet God is able to go, this is what's good and this is what's bad. He's able to discern every single part of it. But not just our actions, this verse 2 says, but also our thoughts. It says, you discern my thoughts from afar. And the, the idea of afar isn't that it's, it is looking from a distance at our thoughts of you over there as he is in his lofty place in heaven. But rather the, the idea of searching from afar is that God is able to determine our thoughts before they even come our own. That before we even have the thoughts, he knows what they're going to be. But again, it's, it's more than that. He's able to discern what source it comes from what motives is driving it. So the thoughts that we have during the day of the most purposeful ones of dreaming of our our businesses and planning our futures and what should take place, setting goals. God sees those intimately and knows your goals and what, what you want in life. But even from the mundane things of making supper for kids at night, what, do, what are they gonna eat? Will they enjoy this? He sees that. And even those daydreams of thinking of who, who's Rassi going to pick for this uh, coming week's test against the British Irish Lions or that series you're watching and you just start daydreaming, how are they going to solve this thing or how is this going to play out? God in his intimate care for you watches and knows all of that. But he also knows what source drives it, where it comes from. But again, his intimacy is not just our thoughts but it's our tongue. Verse 4 even, the word, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you know it all together. Before it, a, a word becomes ours and before it's even formed on our tongue, God knows what we're going to say. And this is a, a, a rather sobering fact, particularly that we've just sung worship <laughs> and sung some songs. He knows what words we're going to say, but also what's driving it. He can determine whether it's true or not. And sometimes we sing songs and we sprout it out, but did we really mean what we've said? God knows when someone asks us, how are you doing? And you say, I am good, when meanwhile, you're really not. 
The beauty of the intimacy of God is he can tell that you really are hurting even though you might be saying something. The, the tongue can fool many, but the th- tongue certainly doesn't fool God. We are incredibly transparent before this God. He sees us perfectly. He, he sees the innermost parts of our soul and our hearts and our minds, and, and he does so because he loves and he cares for us. And, 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 and this blows the mind of David's. That a God who shouldn't give us the time of day, who shouldn't give us a glimpse, gives us his unwavering gaze, looking at us, watching us, knowing it. Man, we as humans want to be known, right? Sometimes we're a bit vulnerable and we're scared of being hurt, but here is a God who knows us perfectly. He knows our actions, our locations, our thoughts, our words, our ways, our motives. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. But in verse 5, there's a shifting of gears that takes place. There's a sense of which God is looking at us and he knows everything about us, but he has an application to all that knowledge. And it says this, You hem me in behind and before me, you lay your hand on me. God encompasses us, he surrounds us. He comes and he encircles us and he, he, he guards us. The idea of a hem here is a closeness, but a guarding of something that is valuable. God guards us because we are valuable to him. When Alyssa and I were uh, hijacked many years ago before we had kids, the hijackers told us to lie down as they started taking everything. And as, as we lay down, I lay on top of Alyssa. I covered her with all I could because I didn't care if you took the car, I didn't care if you took the wallet, I didn't care if you took the watch and everything we owned, but the valuable thing was underneath me and that was I was gonna guard. And in a similar way here, God protects us, he encompasses us, he holds us all together. And, and, and surely this is something that is good for us to understand in a time like this. Sometimes we go through really difficult, hard moments and this helps us to understand that even when those difficult moments come and we think, well, something must have slipped past God's protection. Something must have creeped in that he wasn't paying attention to. How could he allow this trial into my life? But the psalm tells us that God's gaze has never left and he protects us and, and he is good like we have sung and he loves me. And so a God who fully knows every intimate part of my heart has allowed for me certain trials into my life so that he might refine me. And even when I don't think that this should come and happen, I can trust him because he loves me so and he knows what needs to change and what should come my way. And so there's this comforting fact that in the moments of craziness and chaos that might enter into our lives personally, I have this God who loves and has hemmed me in. And so I know that he's still there, he's still guarding, but he has just allowed this in. It's It's an incredibly comforting thing. And, and this results in for us as we understand this in probably two ways. As I've been preaching this morning, as we've unpacked this, there's probably two reactions. And the proper reaction is that of the psalmist. This is where we should land. And I think maybe the psalmist had the other reaction, but this is ultimately where he has landed. And we see that in verse 6. He says this, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is, it is high. I cannot attain it. He just starts to be in wonder 
of the fact that God would be so intimately involved in his life. He is blown away by this massive God who would care so much about him. And this is where we need to start to go. But it doesn't end there. It's not just this one-way street of God's intimacy coming to him. But rather, as he starts to understand that God intimately loves him, affection is stirred in his heart for God's. As we read this, we see God loves him, but you can just hear his affections back towards God. Lord, I love you, that you would love me so much, that you would care. This is, this is too wonderful for me. I, can, I cannot obtain it, and uh, th- this is too high. It's, it's amazing that you would love me so. And as he understands that, there's affections that he's stirred for God. Oh, Lord, you would love me, and I love you. And, and this is wonderful for us, such a wonderful thing. Do you lack affection for God this morning? Is your love for Christ waning? Do you need to love him more? The psalmist tells us that we just need to start to imitate, meditate and, and fixate our eyes on this God and his love for us. And as we do so, Love will be stirred in our hearts more and more and more for him. And so if that's you this week, I would encourage you to go and fixate and meditate on the psalm and think about it. Think about these characteristics. God will start to stir up affections in him as you, as you realize how much he loves you. But that's the first response, and that's where we want to land. But I, I got to admit, maybe you felt it this morning, that another reaction that takes place is that you're wanting to run. <laughs> There's this, oh my goodness, God knows me like that. As I tell you how he, he sees the motives of your heart and he knows the, the source of your thoughts. And the, uh, there is this desire for us to go, wow, I'm, I'm quite exposed and I don't like it. And I think that's a natural reaction, so I don't want to guilt trip you there at all. I think that's a normal human reaction as we are exposed in our sin. That's why we are so good at putting masks up in front of people. But when we realize that God sees past those masks, we want to run. And we see that in Genesis, um, when, when Adam and Eve sin and they realize their nakedness and they realize their sinfulness, they run and hide from God, from God as he walks through the coolness of day. Where are you? Not that he didn't know where they were, but he's calling them intimately back to him. And they go, oh, but we, we knew we were naked. We knew we had done this. And so similar, we want to run from God. And, and I think quite frankly, it, it, it can be quite a terrifying thing. But it shouldn't be for us as Christians this morning. And this is where I want to encourage you. That as Christians, this idea that God knows me so intimately actually doesn't lead to a, a desire to run. But in light of the cross, it leads to more intimacy as we realize that God has looked upon us in the uh, transparencies of our heart. He's, he's seen the ugliness, he's seen the, the stench, he's seen the, the darkness, the, the death of our hearts. He's seen all of it with clear precision. He has not made a mistake. He has not been fooled by our hypocrisy. He has seen us in our entirety, but yet as he looked upon us, he would love us so that he would leave the glories of heaven to come to us. That God would see me in my ugliness, but yet be still willing to die for me is incredible. That he would see me and know me and know me properly. And, and I do not have to be frightened by that, but rather he would love me so that he would give himself up for me even in that sin. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And as believers, we, we are just blown away even more. But Lord, you would love me even if you know me. 
Wow, Romans 5 verses uh, 6 and 8 expresses this beautifully. It's one of my favorite parts of uh, uh, verses in Scripture. It says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. And I think we've seen that this week. We've seen acts of uh, uh, heroic acts taking place in KZN, Pastor Gauteng. As the riots have broken out, we've seen men and, and women fight for each other. Good people, people who are fighting against those who are coming to harm them and standing shoulder to shoulder to do so. Civil, uh, civil uh, guys getting together to fight. Uh, and that is a good thing to do and as we show love. But, but God's love is far greater than just fighting for the good. But God, rather God's love is he, fought, he died for the rioters. It's mad. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. That God's love is, it says here, but God shows his love for us and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, while we rebelled against this awesome God and we we hated him and we destroyed what he owned. He destroyed this world. We destroyed ourselves, his creation. And yet his love for us would be that he would come and die for us. And so as a Christian, as we do the psalm, I hope it doesn't overwhelm you, but rather it starts to stir up affections for Jesus because we are overwhelmed rather not by the fact that he knows us so much, but by he loves us so much. And so this truth that he knows everything about me magnifies the cross, and the cross magnifies this truth. And so I hope you can already start to have your, your heart stirred in that first point. Our second point is this, is that God is with us continually, uh, constantly, God is with us constantly. And I think the psalmist had considered at some point to flee from the presence of God. But as he does so, and as, he, as we will read in the next couple of verses now, he does so, but I think he's, even in realizing that he can't, there is an intimacy that starts to play there. So I want you to, again, listen for his affection towards God as we read. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If, in, if I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Shoal, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you. It's wonderful. The, the psalmist realizes the futility of any possible escape. Any escape route he might have thought of, he can't. Lord, if I run to heaven, you're there. Obviously, you're in heaven, so I'm not going to go there. Well, maybe if I go to Shoal, the realm of the dead, well, well, actually, you're there too. If I take the wings of morning, in other words, if I go at the speed of light, to the most depth of the ocean when there's no mapped out cities, there's no mapped out places where no one can trace my footsteps, Lord, you are still there. If I decide to try cover myself with darkness where nobody else can see, but yet nighttime is like day to you, where can I run? And initially it might have been the sense of overwhelm, of being overwhelmed by his all-knowingness, but now he decides that he's going to he realizes the intimacy behind this. And he makes this comment in, in, in verse 10. He says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even when I have gone where nobody else can follow. Nobody else 
can see me. You still lead me. Even when I have rebelled against you and despised you and hate you, Lord, even when I don't want nothing to do with you and I've fallen into the depth of my sin and pursue after dark, evil things and I, I run in every direction, Lord, even there you are. You're right there with me. You lead me. You guide me. Your hand still holds me. And this should, man, what comfort this should bring to those of you who might be watching online this morning but feel so backslidden. You've slipped down the proverbial slope of sin and you feel that you are drudging in sin. You're so far from the hand of God. The psalm tells us that you're not. That God's hand and arm is not too short that he, he can't reach you and pull you up. You, you, you don't have to suddenly stir up effort, make yourself right again so you might trudge up that long, long mountain that you have slipped down to get to him, but rather he is already with you. That you just have to turn and, and, and grab the hand of the one that is already holding you. This should bring us a tremendous amount of comfort if you're going through massive betrayal. That as you go through dark valleys and things are horrendous and people who, who say they are with you aren't really with you and, and you, they don't understand the hurt and the, and the difficult moment you're going through and you feel all alone, that he is still with you. For even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why doesn't the psalmist fear evil? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you see the personalness in this? He's not making this a theological argument, but he's applying the theological elements and truths about God to himself. And he is comforted by it. And I think this is even more so for us as Christians to realize that we have the security of God never leaving us nor forsaking us. Why? How can we be even more secure in this truth than the psalmist? It's in light of the cross. You see, when Jesus came down and he died on the cross, and as he bore our sin, as he bore our shame, and the wrath of God was poured upon Jesus, Jesus says these words, My Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that you and I will never be forsaken. We can be so secure in the fact that my sins are forgiven and Jesus was forsaken because of my sin that I will never be forsaken by God himself. Oh man, what a wonder that this mighty God, even when we shake our small little puny insignificant worm-like fists at him and run away, that he would still love us and he would stay with us all because of who we are in Christ. And so Romans 8, 38 and, uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul writes it in light of what Christ has done for us. He says these famous words, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again in John 10 verses 28 and 30, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We are eternally secure with God, always with him because Christ holds us in his hand. The Father holds us in his hand, doubly secure. He is always leading, always holding, always protecting, always loving, always with us.
Oh, oh Lord, this is, this is too wonderful for me. You can, just, you can understand why the psalmist is gobsmacked by this great love. Next point um, is God made us wonderfully. God made us wonderfully. We're going to read verses 13 to 18. Again, listen for that affection that the psalmist has and God's intimate involvement in us. He says this, For you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depth of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in the book. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Uh, then, uh, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, there would be more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. From the moment of David's conception, he says God has been involved in his life, making him, forming him, putting him together. In the depth of the earth, he uses this, this understanding when nobody else knew he was there. Even before our, our moms knew there was something up. So God was there with him, intricately making him, designing us exactly how we should be, deciding what we should look like, what personalities we should have. I know some of our parents say we were certainly mistakes, <laughs> but we weren't made by accidents. You weren't an accident. God designed you exactly the way you should look, the way you would be for a purpose and intention, and he did so with care and intimacy and love. There is the love of God at the moment of our conception. He's already there for us. And, and that's what I want to I show us here. As, a, as he delights in us, as he makes us, his love is there for us. And, and, and the point that I'm trying to make here is this, is that God loved you before you were able to do anything. God's love and care over who you are was there before you were able to do anything to impress anyone, to even bring joy to your mother that she was pregnant. God cared for you and loved you so. Isn't that amazing? That he would love us with, I, I mean, just wrap your head around that, that God loved you before you did anything. It's, it's wonderful that we don't have to try earn his love. It was already there. And, and as his creations, he, he didn't just make us um, and leave us haphazardly. He made us for a purpose. He made us with a goal in mind. And we, we see this in, in, um, in verse 16. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when yet there was none. God had a plan for you. And that might seem rather intrusive to you, I think, sometimes. We go, well, who is God to, why does he get to determine what I get to do with my life? Why can't I determine what I do? But the, the idea already is that he's creator, and we are his creation. It makes sense when you make something, you make it to do what you want it to do. But on top of that, I, I, I think we, we all know that have, or I don't know if we all know it, but I, I, I certainly think that there is love in giving us a purpose, right? If you've ever lacked purpose, 
you'll know how devastating and how awful it is. We, we tell people who are about to retire, make sure you have a purpose because it kills you if you don't. And so purposeness is, is such an important thing to have a purpose in life. And God in his love gives us work to do. We see this in Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that God has given us a work to do. But not just any old work, but a work that has eternal significance. Eternal significance. And so therefore we can work and make sure that we do life and have a purpose in it. It's a loving thing to do. That he has designed us in such a way to do a work and we, no one misses out on this. You might wonder why you have the certain characteristics and personality has. God has given you those characteristics and personalities and given you a certain set of talents and skills in order to achieve the work that he has for you. You see, you can have a life, he gave you that, but in giving you work, he's given you an ability to actually live, to live. And when we miss out on this aspect, we enjoy what life is like, but we don't actually truly live. But here, we can have life uh, and truly live and have one, a significant one that echoes into all of eternity. And this is how much God values us. And, and I think this is important as well. When you combine these two truths, there's this understanding that my, the love that God has for me is not wrapped up in the ministry and in the calling he has given me. Do you see that? It's not wrapped up in what I do. Oh man, that's, that's so comforting for me as, a, as someone who's in full-time ministry to know that the, my performance and the, the mountain work I do, God loves me regardless of it and how well I do. His love is not wrapped up in what I do for him. It was already there before I could do anything for him. And this leads to praise. Verse 14. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My, uh, my soul knows it very well. Verses 17 and, and, uh, and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. But I, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And we start to praise God when we realize this. It's, a, it's this intimate, loving praise. Oh, Lord, I am wonderfully made. How great are your works. And even as a Christian, it goes further than just this. Because as a Christian, while we are fearfully, wonderfully made and God has given us a purpose, he has also made us a new creation. That through the death of Christ and through the shedding of his blood, he has washed that dirty, ugly, uh, sinful soul clean and has made it as if it was new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Don't we have much to praise God for? How wonderful is he? Lastly, let's, let's look at this. God judges righteously. God judges righteously. We're going to read the, this last section, verses 19 to 24. It's quite a, a hardcore section, but I, I want you to try to see the intimacy in it if you can. It's a little tough to do so, but I, I think you can if you, uh, at the end, hopefully you will see it. It says this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. You see, I told you it was going to be tough. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them uh, my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me 
and lead me in an everlasting in the way in the way everlasting when we take into account that God is all knowing that he is everywhere and that he is our creator and, and essentially is over us and what we should do with our lives it means that when God judges he judges righteously he judges with perfect perfect precision He's able to make sure that he gives the right judgment in every single case for he has known the depth of everybody's hearts and the motives behind it. He has discerned it, he has noted it, and he's put it down. And therefore, when God judges, and he will one day judge, when he does so, he does so righteously and justly. So when, that, when he makes his judgment, there's nobody who's able to appeal it and say, you're wrong. There's nobody who's able to challenge his ultimate outcome. And the outcome is this. When he judges, he will judge and say, all have sinned, all were wicked, all hearts had evil motives, all thoughts were evil, all people's tongues had lied and, and spread false news and, and said things that were, weren't true. He has weighed everybody up and ultimately against his own standard, which is him. And he has said, all has fallen short of the glory of God, as we see in Romans 3, verse 23. And that's his judgment, and ultimately the punishment which he says follows from this finds itself in Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin, the punishment of sin is death. But hang on, Joe. Have we not been talking about God's love for us this morning? How does this creep into all of that? Well, friends, I want to let you know that God's love is not demonstrated in looking at our sin and overlooking it and letting it slip by. I think we can say thank God to that this week, that God sees and will punish all wickedness. But God's love is ultimately demonstrated in that he sees our sin, sees the ugliness of it, and yet would take the punishment upon himself that he would see what we have done and bear the sin of what we have, have done ourselves. He would bear that wrath for him, that his blood would wash away our sins. It's not in overlooking it, but taking it upon himself so that when we stand before God, he no longer sees our sin because of what Christ has done, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And you see, the psalmist here is not just pointing fingers and saying, Lord, deal with their sin. <laughs> That's what he's doing here. It's not, it doesn't just leave it there. His disdain and hatred towards sin is not only at the world. And man, as Christians, we need to be careful about that this week. That in South Africans, we, we don't just point and say, Lord, deal with them, but rather his disdain for sin leads even to himself. He doesn't look outwardly only, but he looks inwardly. And we see that in verses 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me. This isn't arrogance. He's not saying that, Lord, do them harm and slay them for their wickedness, but look at me, I'm good. He knows he's not. He knows he's transparent before God. He's saying, Lord, search me. Lord, he's already searching, but search me again and see if there's wickedness in me, Lord, because I hate this sin. I hate this stuff that takes away my affections. I love you. I enjoy you, but my heart is weak, and it runs after this ugly, sinful things, these passions of the world, and it draws me away, and I don't want to, Lord. I don't want to miss out on more of you. I want to enjoy you, so look in my heart. See the sinfulness, Lord, and in what? And lead me in the way of everlasting. 
Help me, Lord. I am sinful and I want to know more of you. Please take away my sin. Help me to become more close to you and I hate the sin in me. Oh, as Christians, if we would not only point fingers at others, but we would look at the log in our own eye. And what this does is our affections are stirred for Jesus as we love him and we see how intimately involved he is in our lives. What we want is we want the sin away because we know how good it is to be close to him. We know how pressured it is to feel his love for us. And as we enjoy his love, we don't want anything to take it away. But we also know from so much experience how fickle our hearts are and how easily they run after the lesser joys of this world rather than him. And so as our hearts are stirred for him, we ask, Lord, help me. You see my motives. I can't be fake before you. I'm not going to cover it up. But search it, know it, remove it, because I want more of you. I want more of you. Let us close our eyes. I'm going to ask Natesca to come forward. I'm going to ask some questions this morning just to prompt your heart, but how's your affection for Jesus going? Is your love for Christ good? Is it doing well? Well, I want to tell you there's more. The psalmist says, it's too high for me to obtain. There's so much more for you. You can never grasp all of his love for you. There's still more affection. Is it not doing well? Set your heart on him because he loves you. He loves you so much. Take this week. Meditate on who God is, but not just theologically in a high knowledge type sense, but say it to me. He loves me. He knows me. He's with me. He created me. Make it personal this week. Let that stir up affections and do so in light of the cross. Do so in light of what Jesus has done for you. For he loves you. It's the greatest demonstration of his love. Is there any sin in you that you're holding on to? Ask God to remove it. Love him, church. It's the best place you can be. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we are so thankful that you love us with such an incredible love. That you would know our hearts, that you would know our thoughts, our minds, that you would know every single part of us, but yet love us. It's, it's, it's too high for us to obtain. But I pray, Lord, that you would stir up affections in our hearts, that we would fall madly in love with you as a church that, Lord, we wouldn't only be characterized by how well we run events and how slick things can be, but really the true characteristic of a, a member of SBC would be they love Jesus. There's this aroma of intimacy when they speak about Christ. And, Lord, we're on different journeys than that, but I pray that we'd get to a place like David, that at the end of our lives, Psalm 139 could be what characterizes us that we would enjoy you and delight in you oh and Lord you want that it's why you died for us you want it you know how much we love you or how much you love us and how much we can love you and, and so Lord I pray that you would search us that you would know us and see if there's any grievous way in us 
and that, Lord, you would lead us in the way of everlasting. Amen. gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven not to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I strange and divine I can sing all is mine yet not I but through Christ in me the night is dark but I am not forsaken for by my side Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, been one and I shall Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home, and day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus.
challenging psalm this morning what a challenging word father may this journey that we're all on this race that we're on may we grow ever more aware of how intimate you are how much you you know us lord how much you want us to grow in our love and our desire for you you're with us every moment we can never be away from you. When we awake, you are there. Throughout the day, you're there. Lord, we want to grow in our awareness of you, our love for you, our affection for you. We want to be like David uh, was at this point in his journey. Just so in awe, so in love with you. As we go out into the rest of this day, Lord, may there be a sense of worship in our hearts to you, a sense of just joy and knowledge of your presence but Lord also purpose what do you have in this day for us that you want us to do for you may we be a church who knows you in a deeper way and follows you with an obedient spirit in Jesus name Amen thank you church enjoy the rest of your day have a wonderful week and we will see you next week